to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm really excited about our show today. Um, we are so blessed to have Cheryl Stevenson with us, um, who is living with mild cognitive impairments, uh, share her story. But before we go there, I always get people asking us, you know, who is Alzheimer's Speaks and what do you do? Um, because we get new listeners around the world all the time. So I'm just going to take a minute to kind of introduce uh, Alzheimer's Speaks. Basically, we are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We're also viewed as a as a media platform because we have so many different modes. We have the radio show, we have the website, we have the blog, we have YouTube channels, um, and we do um, various videos called Dementia Chats. And um, so please check us out. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you'll get more information about us there. Um, as far as what we do, we're really all about raising everyone's voice and helping the conversation get started. We, we strongly believe in sharing knowledge and just having comfortable conversations about how do we remove stigmas attached to memory loss? How do we help people live well with this disease and feel connected um, in their families and friendships and society at large? We also believe that collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And we really know that you know, it's working. Um, these collaborations, uh, you listening to us, us listening to you and, and raising your voice, you see, it's because of your likes, your clicks, your shares um, that we got um, recognized by ShareCare and Dr. Oz as the number one influencer online um, for Alzheimer's. And we were also recognized by Maria Shriver as an architect of change. And again, that would not have happened without each and every one of you. And so really thank you. And while you're listening, if you wouldn't mind just clicking on the show and liking us and go ahead and share it with your Facebook friends, your Twitter tribe, your your LinkedIn colleagues, your Pinterest peeps, uh, because in our spheres of influence, there are many people who are dealing with this topic who really haven't come out and told anybody. And, you know, we all feel a little bit more comfortable in um, addressing something when we feel it's more normal than abnormal. So the more information people can find on it, the easier it's going to be for them. Uh, so please help us in that, in that mission. I also want to mention that we are doing a dementia-friendly cruise and symposium November 11th through the 18th. And um, very excited about that. We have four people uh, living with dementia who are going to be speaking, uh, Harry Urban, Michael Ellenbogen, Lori Shearer, and uh, Mary Reed. We also have uh, Cindy Lezinski from Colorado, who's working on a dementia-friendly community there, and um, Becky Watson, who is a music therapist. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I think it's going to be really an interesting time, and we are so appreciative of our, our sponsors, um, like Music for Wellness, um, Free to Go Mobility, John Hopkins, the American Senior Magazine, the Dementia-Friendly Communities of Northern Colorado, and so many more. Um, so please, uh, again, go to alzheimerspeaks.com. If you're interested in joining us, there's still time to get in. Just go to our initiatives uh, page, and uh, you'll be able to find more information there. 
The last thing I want to mention about our show is that, again, we like to raise everyone's voice. So maybe you as a listener could be our next guest. Um, Maybe you're living with the disease. Maybe you are uh, caring for someone who has dementia or you think might have dementia. Uh, Maybe you are a researcher. Uh, a movie director, a singer, a songwriter, an author who has um, written about the disease. Um, maybe you are a business um, and you've developed a, a, a product, a service, or tool to help somebody. Again, we, we want to raise all voices and have a conversation. So please reach out to me. You can just go to the big contact button at alzheimerspeaks.com and go ahead and pitch me your story. Love to hear it, and I'd love to have the conversation. So let's get into our, our show today. We are going to be talking about relationships and how they can change with a diagnosis of MCI or mild cognitive impairment. We are really excited to have Cheryl Stevenson um, back with us. She was diagnosed when she was 59 years old, and she is currently a um, an active advocate for um, for MCI and dementia at large. She started a blog in 2005 and has continued with her writings all these years, which I'm just so impressed um, with her tenacity. And she's been doing a lot of poetry here lately and also started a YouTube channel that she hopes to do more videos, um, helping the rest of us understand what it's like to live with MCI. So Welcome, Cheryl. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How about you, Lori? Doing great. Um, Before we get into kind of our general line of questioning, if you wouldn't mind explaining um, a little bit about your history uh, to our audience. Um, When did you notice symptoms and what did the doctor have to say and and how did that affect you? Um, I think um, I had, well, I had I was married at the time. I had three children. They were probably all teenagers. And I would say back in the fall of 1999 is when we really started seeing symptoms. Um, It wasn't until I was at the doctor's for a torn tendon in my right elbow. And I was talking about the elbow, and I said, I'm kind of concerned about my my um, memory, I seem to be forgetting things all the time. And I was 47 at the time, and it was back in 2005. And I think most um, doctors would have just brushed it off. He's not a doctor I had ever seen before. Didn't know him. He didn't know me. He was just in the practice that I went to. And um, he sent me, I think, for um, maybe blood work and a CAT scan. And then from there, he referred me to a neurologist, and he's now my primary care. And okay. from there, I, um, because of my age, they um, told me I should get a second diagnosis, and I went to a second neurologist. Um, my first diagnosis was in July of 2005. My second one was a couple months later, and the second one was the my first one was actually EOAD, early onset Alzheimer's, and the second neurologist changed it to MCI. Okay, and that's the mild cognitive impairment. That's correct. Okay, wonderful. And so, um, and, and that just shows that this this isn't. Um, a real fine art in terms of, you know, it is subjective and uh, that you can have different diagnosis and, or that a diagnosis uh, can change um, with people. I've heard that um, many, many times from people yeah. that they thought it was one thing and then it, it ended up being another. How did you feel when your when the diagnosis uh, was changed? Um, confused. Mm-hmm. For years, I didn't know, like, which was the correct diagnosis. I'm like, do I go to a third doctor? Is it best out of three? Um, I didn't have health insurance for a while. And then in 2014, I saw a third neurologist, and he sent me for a neuropsychological evaluation, which I had never had done. It was 
probably four or five hours of testing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was brutal. It was horrible. I cried. And in September of 2014, I got the results of that, and it confirmed the MCI diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's good. I know my mom went through that neuropsych testing, and she had two half days, and she was just a puddle. She was is so stressed out and so upset and so tearful, and it was, you know, as a family member, it was just so hard to watch. Um, how how frustrated and upset and disappointed she was in herself. I mean, the list just went on and on. I think with emotions that she described to us, and it was it was it was horrible. It was just horrible to to see her have to go through that um, yeah. in order oh, to yeah. get a diagnosis. When you're taking a test, you can just see the face and you can see the notes. You know, like they're taking the notes and they're like, "Oh, I know, I'm feeling that part." <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just doesn't make you feel good about yourself. Yep, yep. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. Well, I appreciate you sharing your history with us because I think it's really important for our audience to kind of have a little bit of a background um, on you. Now, with the diagnosis of the MCI and even the, the EOAD that you had there for a short period of time, did that diagnosis, do you think it it affected your relationships with family members? Oh, yeah. It's changed the whole dynamics of my relationship. Um, I'm usually very outgoing, and there are times when I pull back, and I'm not as um, communicating with people because I'm not in that place where... I can find the words to communicate. Mm-hmm. So that's difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Did How did family react to the diagnosis? Well, my kids thought there was, my kids and my ex-husband thought there was something wrong because I was, you know, they'd get home from school and I'd ask them, you know, do you have any homework? Five, ten minutes later, I'd ask them the same question. Mom, you already asked me. I said, no, I didn't don't remember the first conversation. I'd ask them a third time, don't remember the first, second conversation. They're like, Mom, you already asked me. I said, no, I didn't. You know, I thought they mm-hmm. were, you know, they were just telling me that, you know. Yeah. But they thought, you know, I think they thought, you know, Mom's being a nag, you know. But eventually it was too many times that they said, Mom's having problems. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the reason about- the reason I the reason I can get it back to the fall of nineteen ninety nine exactly is because my daughter graduated from high school in May of two thousand and I remember that fall. She just started her senior year and she had a deadline. It might have been like October or November something. She said, Mom, Mom, we gotta find the baby pictures, the albums and they were packed away somewhere and because we had moved, and she said, "We've got to find a baby picture. I want to put it in, in the in the yearbook." And I'd say, "Okay, Jen. Okay, okay." And I couldn't remember to do it. I don't even mm-hmm. know if I remember to even write a note to tell me to do it. It just uh-huh. didn't happen. My daughter was crushed. The deadline came and went. She was mad at me, and I mm-hmm. felt terrible. Yep. Oh yeah, I can imagine. That would be that would be difficult. Something that important, you know, and and, you know, and again, I, I no, let her down. I I well, let her down. I didn't I didn't mean to. It just happened. Yeah, the disease let her down. You know, because I yeah. your 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 soul wouldn't have done that if it wouldn't. You know, if it would have known. You know, your mind, no. your heart, your soul. It just uh, it's it's just this dang disease, and people need to understand that just because something's important or logical or practical or something that you've always done doesn't mean that you're going to be able to do it. Because if you can't remember you know, those particulars, it's not going to stick. And, um, and we, we as a society have to get out of just trying to make it so black and white. Cause this is a really, 
I found anyways with my mom. It's a really gray area. And sometimes things go really smooth and other times not so much. And I found, you know, mom couldn't pick the times where, you know, she was going to be really clear and, and really concise. It just, it just happened. Same, same with when she wasn't. It just happened, and, and it wasn't something she could control. Do you find that um, being the same case for yourself? Yep. And my um, ex-husband used to say, yeah, sometimes you forget things, but you always seem to forget things that I want you to remember. You know, it's like <laughs> he thought it was selective. He thought it was selective memory. And I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it's because we, you know, as care partners, we, like everyone else, we prioritize what's important to us. And so then, you know, and when we do that, then we take these things as being personal and, and being vengeful. And that, that really typically has nothing to do with anything. It's just a forgetfulness. It's really quite innocent. It's not meant to be vindictive or mean or any of that, but, but that's how people take it. Um, yep. Is very, I think, a really, really common response. I think that that's good that you pointed that out. How about with um, friends? How did they react to your diagnosis? Did that change your um, relationship? They were shocked. Mm-hmm. They were, like, shocked. They had, like, you know, I called my very closest friends, and I had two friends that were waiting for phone calls when I got back from getting the results from the first neurologist and got the EOAD diagnosis. And then the hardest phone call I made was to my mother, you know, mm-hmm. telling her. And we both cried on the phone, you know. Mm-hmm. Was this a, a diagnosis that others in your family had at all? Was there any family history to your knowledge? To my knowledge, there is none, but my dad died at the age of 57. Um, it was a stroke during um, during or soon after a cardiac bypass surgery, so he had heart problems. Um, so I don't know. We don't, we don't know if there's any, like, Alzheimer's or any memory impairments in my family. Mm-hmm. Not, well, not that we know and I think the whole genetic thing is really tough to track. I know that there's a gene out there and, you know, you can get tested for that. But, you know, I've talked with so many um, people that, you know, they can they can count all of the people that they know in their family who have had some form of dementia. And it might have been called different things. It might have been called hardening of the arteries. It might have been called senility. It might have been Alzheimer's. It might might have been called, you know, a bunch of different names because it's changed over time. But they they remember there being issues, and yet they'll talk to their doctor, and the doctor's like, well, you know, we don't think it's hereditary. But I know so many families that really question that. But again, we don't have we don't have the research to track that either. And so that's why it's so important, I think, for people to get involved in the trials, you know, to kind of figure that out. Um, yeah. I just met with uh, the doctor. We had, you know, my mom passed in 2014. And I just met with the doctor uh, yesterday um, that was part of the clinic who did uh, the autopsy for my mom's brain. Because I'm looking at it going, I, you know, I'm in this industry, but I still, it's just all medical jargon and it's way over my head. And it mentioned Alzheimer's and Lewy body and, you know, some Parkinson's type stuff. And so I said, I just, and even some vascular things with stroke and stuff. And so I wanted to find out, you know, what was this? And, you know, he basically said, you know, the dementia was so severe, but she lived with it for 30 years. You know, she started in her mid fifties and lived for 30 years. He says, so he says, we usually don't see the atrophy and and everything this severe, but she lived with it so long. And, um, you know, and we kind of ruled out just, you know, by after talking, um, the Louis bodies, he's like, they were there, but they probably weren't really evident. It wasn't, you know, what took her life and, you know, actually what took her life ended up being pneumonia. And um, he said the strokes looked like they were more small strokes. And, he's, you know, and then he said people have strokes all the time and don't know, <laughs> don't know it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So it wasn't because I'm like, well, do you think it was vascular? Because her mom had or her dad uh, died of a uh, massive heart attack. And, you know, and then he, we talked about family history and and uh, stuff. And there's not there really isn't a lot out there, but it's there's just so little known, you know. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I thank you for having this conversation because it's going to get people to think a little bit more yeah, about absolutely. it. Now, um, you are going to be a grandma pretty soon. Um, how I do you think am. that's going to play out with your MCI diagnosis? And you and I have talked offline on, you know, just what a gift being a, a grandparent you know, um, is. I think that it's probably going to look a lot different than I would have wanted it to look many years ago when I looked into the future when I was mm-hmm. raising my children and thinking about being a grandmother someday and now with all my memory problems and, you know, it's been so long since I got diagnosed and I live alone. My children are on their own. I have two that are married, one that lives out of state. My daughter is, and my daughter and her husband are pregnant with um, twin daughters. Um, she should be having them probably in the November, beginning of December. Um, so, yeah, we're very excited about that. But there's been some things that I've had to talk to her about that I, the conversations that I, I didn't really think I'd have to have. Like we had a conversation one night on the phone and, you know, she sent me an email and it contained um, um, an email address and a phone number of two people in our wedding party, two girls that I know and her mother-in-law. So I looked at the email. I said, yeah, I know Jen was going to send me this email. And all right, I didn't know what to do with the email. I didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. with the information. I didn't really know why she sent it. I just know she sent it. Mm-hmm. So a week later, I talked to her, and she goes, did you get my email? I said, yeah. I said, but I didn't do anything with it. She said, Mom, that's to help you with the shower. I said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, we must have had a misunderstanding last week when we talked on the phone. She said, why? I said, I am not. There's there's no way I'm in any position to um, to plan and take on everything that that." putting on a baby shower entails, you know, when you guys were younger and I was in my 20s and 30s. And, yeah, I could take on planning a birthday party for, you know, all of you guys, you know, for each one of you when you had a birthday party. That's not the case anymore. I can mm-hmm. no longer do all that. Can't do mm-hmm. all the planning involved. Yeah. And then, then I have the anxiety of what if I forget something? What if I do something wrong? Then I've got the anxiety of I'm going to disappoint my daughter, mm-hmm. my only daughter, my first grandchildren. I'm going to disappoint her, and I'm mm-hmm. going to wreck her sh- her baby shower. And uh-huh. she said, I, I didn't. And she just said, I, I didn't know, Mom. I, I didn't know this wasn't something you could take on. I said, Well, we had a misunderstanding, but no, this isn't something I can take on. I will help in any way I can. And it breaks my mm-hmm. heart that I can't do it, but I have no problem with. I have no problem with saying what I can do and what I can't do. Well, and I think that that's fantastic. You know that you're able to do that because a lot of people a, have never been comfortable at saying that. Um, you know, in in knowing that no is an okay word. <laughs> you know, to to, uh, oh, yeah. to state. And so I, I think that that is that is wonderful. I did want to just note on the whole um, future grandchild thing. You know, my I was pregnant and my mom had dementia. And I'm just going to throw this out, and some people might disagree and think this was horrible, but this was the decision we made as a family. Um, it was so important for my mom to be a grandma to to be able to spend alone time with with my daughter. And so my husband and I um, decided to let that happen for short periods of time. And I got to tell you, um, it was probably one of the best decisions we made because my mom was so attentive to her. And, you know, I mean, I, when I drop her off, she was changed and knew that she probably wouldn't have to be changed again. I would um, drop off the food 
And so, um, you know, she was, they could eat together and it wasn't anything that she had to, you know, make or anything. And then, um, and then they would just play together in this intense Mm -hmm. play of, you know, maybe they were coloring. She was, when she was a little bit older, um, they would color and I would come back to pick her up and I couldn't tell who was prouder of their art projects, my mom or my daughter who was like, you know, two and three years old. And when she was younger, I would just spend time with them, um, but yep. kind of walk out of the room and just give them some private time. And my daughter only knew her grandma with Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, when she died, when my daughter was like 25, they were just two peas in a pod. They were so close, so incredibly close. And it was a, really a gift to both of them. So I, I know some people will disagree with our decision and every family has to make their own, but I do want to just give that positive light on that. Mm-hmm. There's, there's also a video that was done um, by my friend Colin over in Australia. And, you know, he talks about um, babies and um aging population period. And um, he said there, it's just kind of almost instinctual um, dementia or not to take care of a child. And they showed examples of them with uh, a baby and um, maybe hot coffee and knowing that that needed to be moved. And just, it was really, it was pretty incredible. Some of the research and stuff that they had done and the love. And he, he said what they found was that it wasn't just a female thing. You know, grandpas love their grandchildren just as much as grandma do too. And they love playing with them and that joy. And I think part of it is, you know, as adults, we we get overloaded, especially nowadays, um, with all the things we have to do. And dementia, I, from my perspective, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, Cheryl, but makes you live more in the moment. And, and yep. you can't deal with a lot of multiple tasks. So you're really in the zone of wherever you're at. And, and that's, that's a gift in any relationship. If it's a child, I can't, I can't, um, what I have trouble with is, uh, I noticed when I was working, well, when I was working, I was actually working two jobs. It's the only way I could, um, get divorced. Um, I was working in special education and I ended up doing that for, um, 21 years and I worked in an elementary school. And I noticed when I was working in the school that, I had trouble with verbal multi-step directions. And I had the second grade teacher that I worked with, and all of a sudden she rattled off three or four things. And I thought my head was just going to spin. I'm like, oh, no, now what do I do? So I tried to remember all the steps that she wanted me to do with what particular student, and Mm -hmm. I, I, I just couldn't do it. So I went over to her and I said, could you just, Repeat that again, please. So mm-hmm. she repeated it. I grabbed a piece of um, scrap paper, and I wrote it down really quickly. And um, so I realized that that particular teacher I hadn't worked with before. And when mm-hmm. I was working, I didn't broadcast, hey, I got a memory impairment. It was a need-to-know basis. Mm-hmm. So if I worked with a teacher, then they knew. If I didn't mm-hmm. work with somebody in school, they didn't know. This particular teacher didn't know about my diagnosis, and I realized if she's going to rattle off these verbal directions all the time to me, this is going to be a challenge. So I've got to find a way to work around it. So later on that day, I had some planning time, and I I had written myself a note, make sure you email so-and-so. And I got on my computer, and I emailed the teacher, and I said, you probably don't know this, but I have a diagnosis, and I can't do multi-step verbal directions. I can do one direction at a time verbally. Mm-hmm. If you put it on a, on a piece of paper and you list it out, one, two, three, what order, what steps, where you want, you know, when do you want it done, I'm there. But verbally, you, you rattle it off. I'm, I'm trying to concentrate on the first thing you said, 
But in reality, all I'm all I'm remembering is the last thing you said. Sure. So sure. the next the next day, I went into her classroom, and there at the table where I put down my my glasses, my reading glasses, and my pen and my water was a list for me. Uh-huh. And so she got it. So she got it. We didn't have to communicate anymore. She she understood what she, what she had to do to accommodate me so I could do my job. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And so, you know, it worked. Good. Well, I do want to note, too, if um, if we have listeners that um, want to ask a question, they can use the chat box. Um, you just sign in typically through your Facebook page. Or you can call in, too, and that number is 323 323- Eight seven zero four six zero two, and I'll repeat that one more time: three two three eight seven zero four six zero two, and we can go ahead and pull you into the conversation if you've got a question or or a comment for Cheryl. Um, Cheryl, another topic I, I would really like to talk with you about. You mentioned you got divorced, and um, you know, and, and we're talking about relationships as a whole. How have you entered the dating world? And if so, how has that worked for you? Well, I was in a long-term relationship. We were together almost five years. And I think we were dating a few months, and I realized that there was a relationship there that was probably going to last for a little bit. So I figured, well, I better, I better kind of come out. And at that time, I... Diagnosis, I had both diagnosis, the MCI and the EOAD. So um, I had a lot of anxiety telling him. And through telling him, I started crying. And I remember he said to me, whatever it is, just, you know, just tell me. And I, I mm-hmm. told him, you know, what was going on. And he said, is, is, is that all? He's like, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter what 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 you're dealing with. We'll deal with it together because I'm already in love with you. Mm-hmm. And um and he said, So did you did you mean that there might be a time that you might not know who I am? And I'm like, Well I I don't know. I don't really know. I hope not And then you know, years later in twenty fourteen when I was still with him, when, you know, I got it confirmed that it was M C I you know, I was like, oh, good, good. That means, you know, I probably won't forget him. Well, mm-hmm. there was a time I forgot him. You know, we lived about a half hour away, so we'd stay at his place, and then we'd, you know, years later, we'd stay at my place a few days. And there was one evening, one particular evening, we stayed at his place, and and I describe it as the fog rolled in, and he, like, looked at me, and I had a blank look on my face. And he's like, are you okay? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know where we are, and I don't know who you are. Uh-huh. And it, and it scared the both of us, but I was able to verbalize to him what was going on. But even though I couldn't say where I was and who he was, I knew in my heart that he was somebody who loved me, mm-hmm. which in itself is a confusing concept because, A, you don't know who that person is because you don't remember them. You don't remember mm-hmm. the relationship and what it is. But then in your heart, you feel and you know that there's love there. So it's confusing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and that's, I, I always felt that with my mom, that she might not get the name right, but she knew that it was a loving relationship. And mm-hmm. so if she'd call me her mom or if she'd call my brothers her brother, it, it, that didn't make any difference because, you know, she she was comfortable and she was happy and she felt safe. And it just made me think, what more can I really want? Is my ego that big that it, she has to say my name? For, am I that insecure? You know, and when you look at it in that fashion, because we don't, we don't look at it as egotistical for someone to have to know our name. But when you step back, it really is because it's really more about our comfort than your comfort. And if we're yeah. truly caring for somebody, it should be about their comfort. 
you know, and and our compassion uh, and and empathy to be able to to deal, you know, with the situation, knowing that we're much more than just a name, or I would like to think we are, anyways, you know, with that. So yeah. So I so I'd like the listeners to know that you know if you're having memory problems, you know, start with your primary care doctor. You know, take notes. Let them know what problems you're having. You know, mm-hmm. before I got my first diagnosis, it was it was repeating things. It was getting lost in familiar places. And it was word-finding issues. And it mm-hmm. was problem with organization. Um, and I guess, in a way, I thought, okay, once I got the MCI diagnosis, it means I'm not going to forget my family and somebody who's close to me who I love. But in that relationship that was long-term, almost five years, it happened, and it happened more than that one evening. It mm-hmm. probably happened more than I even told him. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was good about things was we had communication, and there were times that he could, like, he'd say to me, and he goes, are you all right? And I'd say, no, I'm not feeling like I'm not feeling right. And he goes, the fog kind of rolled in, and I'd be like, yeah. And he'd just, he'd describe it as I would be staring into space, my eyes would look very glassy, and I would be somewhere else. I was not mm-hmm. present where he was. Uh-huh. Once in a while I could communicate with him, and there were times that I couldn't because I was uh-huh. somewhere else. But to get somebody else's perspective on that was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But during that yeah. time, he would. During that time, he would say to me, "It's okay. It'll pass. It's all right. You're okay. You're safe. I love you. We're okay. It's all. Everything's okay." So mm-hmm. he would. He would just try to let me let me feel okay that you know everything was going to be all right. It'll it'll pass. You'll come out the other side. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Now, another topic I'd like to talk about is just um, regarding doctors and and therapists and kind of strategies, because sometimes that can be really mumbo-jumbo and, and, you know, with multiple people or um, not permanent physicians. And and how does that affect you with your MCI? Um. Most of the time I, when I go to my doctors, I see my primary care, but there are times when I see different physicians, assistant, and different people. And I usually do, do okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. But I had a fall at my job at school in April of 2014, and I am now out of work as of June of 2015. I'm actually not working anymore um, because of the fall. <coughs> um and with that, I have an ongoing problem with a left knee, and I've had surgery with that and the left shoulder, and I've been seeing a new doctor. And even though you can say I've got a memory problem, they don't really look in your records and say, well, she's got this diagnosis and research it or anything. And he decided that my thigh muscle needed to be um, – it was weak, so we needed to work on that. So. My last appointment a couple about a month and a half ago, he said, "Well, let me show you some exercises." And I just looked at him and, you know, did some of the exercises. And, and I said, "I said I have a problem with my memory. I said I'm probably going to remember these before I even drive home. And, you know, the 15 minute drive home." And mm-hmm. he said, "Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I'll write it all down for you." I said, "Okay." Not knowing what his writing down was really kind of consist of so he mm-hmm. left the room medical assistant came back in and said oh he wants you to make an appointment x amount of weeks and gave me a half sheet of paper with a list of five exercises no pictures no no yeah, no graphics no pictures nothing no explanation really just whatever the name of the exercise was do you know 10 times you know 10 repetitions once a day and I looked at that paper, and I just wanted to cry. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's setting me up for failure. And I said that to the medical assistant. I said, well, this isn't going to work. 
So I just mm-hmm. left there feeling defeated, and I had to go back to my regular doctor a couple of days later for something else. And when I went there, I saw a physician's assistant, and I said, and they're kind of related to the same um, doctor that I was seeing for the knee, only they were in a different office, but they're the same practice, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So the mm-hmm. other doctor has access to all my records. And I said, well, m- maybe you need to, like, put something on my record that said, you know, MCI diagnosis, make sure when this patient comes in, you know, make sure that there's an understanding of what you're telling her, you know, note that she has a memory issue. Mm-hmm. And all the physician's assistants said to me, well, perhaps you just need to show up at your doctor, any of your doctor's appointments with a little notebook so you can take notes. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I just kind of shook my head and kept my mouth shut because she didn't really get what I was trying to explain. So I was having a conversation with a friend, and I was very frustrated. And I'm like, you know, what do I do? There's no way I can do these exercises. It's not my job to Google them. They should have given me the information so I could be successful. And my friend happened to say, why don't you just go back to physical therapy? I'm like, perfect. Called my doctor's office and said, can I just go back to physical therapy? So played phone tag for a couple of days. They finally called me back, and they said, yeah, where do you want to go? So they faxed paperwork to a physical therapist where I had gone before for my knee and shoulder. And this is the only person that I will see for physical therapy because I've told him about my diagnosis. He gets it. I have no anxiety. I can go there. He can show me the exercises. If he kind of sees a blank look on my face, he knows he has to show it again, explain it differently, and then check with me and say, you all set with that? And then have me do it, and then he goes, you're good. So Mm -hmm. I can only go to one person for physical therapy right now because I have no anxiety, and that's Mm -hmm. huge. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's and that's good to know and to be able to monitor that and 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 make sense of that versus spinning. So I think that that is wonderful, um, Cheryl. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. Um, gosh, our time is just flying here. So many different things. Um, just briefly about um, finances, and I know that you're not working and stuff now, and housing situations, because I hear this from so many people. Everybody thinks that everyone is living with somebody and there's someone to take care of all the major responsibilities. But when you're on your own, you're on your own. Um, how how uh, are no, you doing? I, well, I live alone. And when I was, when I was working, I had to work two jobs to support myself. I worked uh, as a paraprofessional at school at an elementary school. I worked six and a half hours a day there. And then I had to get a second job and that was as a cashier at Walmart So each week I worked, I think, 32 and a half at school, and I worked 16 hours at uh, Walmart. Mm -hmm. So um, there were three days, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, that I'd work six and a half hours at school, and then I'd leave school and drive 15 minutes to Walmart right down the road. Uh, It was actually 10 minutes, and I'd start my four-hour shift at Walmart, so my Six-and-a-half-hour day turned into a a ten-and-a-half-hour day, but 12 hours by the time I got home. So those days were very difficult um, Mm -hmm. because they were very long, but I was able to support myself for several years. Now on disability, my paycheck once a month is um, $500 less than what I was making when I was working two jobs. So Mm -hmm. I had a workers' comp settlement, and I've been – dipping into some of my savings, and I realized a couple weeks ago when I was doing my bills and doing my budget, and I'm like, whoa, oh, because my my ex-boyfriend and I broke up in May, and um, so I had somebody sharing the responsibility for several months from last August to this May. So now all of a sudden I had to take on, you know, all the rent and all the food and stuff. So... Mm -hmm. Um, suddenly my um, once-a-month Social Security disability check 
was not covering everything. It wasn't. It was covering my rent, and then I only had two hundred and something dollars left over, mm-hmm. um, or maybe close to three hundred, and I still needed to pay car payment, car insurance, medications, food, um, and gas for my SUV. So um, there was there was no money left over. Yeah, actually, once I take my rent out of my disability check, I have $265. And um, that wasn't working, so I was taking money out of my savings, and, and that's going to to disappear. So I realized, I, I was, like, shocked, and I was like, oh, oh no, now what do I do? So I, w- I had a conversation with a friend and ended up working that into the conversation and, and um, her husband actually has um, uh, frontal temporal dementia and she works for uh, Easter Seals and does a lot of work with caregivers and steers them to the right resources and she says well we, we got to get you some housing and I said okay so you know what does that look like so trying to think changes changes for somebody who lives with a memory impairment not a fun thing to do Mm-hmm. I've lived in my apartment. Um, it'll be nine years in November. I've lived in the same apartment. And there's been times when I said, well, maybe this particular item that I work with in the kitchen shouldn't be in this cabinet. Maybe I'll move it up to this cabinet. And then I'll go, no, I better put it back. And there's one reason that I have to put it back. Not because I choose to, because I have to. My brain mm-hmm. is only going to remember where I had that item when I bought it or when I moved into the apartment, if I moved into the apartment with that item, where I put it. It's mm-hmm. not going to remember where I put it recently because my yeah. brain deficits, my um, memory issues are short-term, not long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So then I'd have the frustrated, frustration of knowing, where did I put that cheese grater? It sure. used to be in this cabinet. I moved it, mm-hmm. so I, I can't. I can't move. I can't move different things around. It has to stay where it's been, whether I like it or not. So then, when I thought about, well, I I now don't have enough money to support myself, so I'm looking at um, housing that will help me. Um, I forget what they call it, but anyway. Um, with that, I cried off and on for like three days because there was a lot, a lot of anxiety with moving and getting acclimated to a new apartment and then mm-hmm. trying to remember where I put everything in my cabinets and finding space for everything. And then it was just overwhelming to try to try to think about it. Yeah, you know? I, can, I can believe that. Um, Cheryl, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about you've been doing a lot of writing of poems and and things. Um, it, can yeah, you share with people um, how those come to you? Twenty eleven, I started writing. Mm-hmm. I started writing in twenty eleven, and it just accidentally happened. I was on Facebook. I was on um, one of the groups I'm on. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, these words started flying around in my head. And I said, okay, I'll open up a Word document. I started typing, and it just has spun out from there. I have, I don't know, 30-something finished poems and a folder on my laptop that has, like, about 30 unfinished poems that need to be chipped away at. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I don't know how they're born. It just just sort of happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if if you would feel comfortable if I if I read part of um, one of your um, poems um, sure. on the air. Um, if there's one called "Which Path Will You Take," and you wrote that, mm-hmm. it looks like in June of this year. It says the mm-hmm. path of acceptance or the path of denial. The path of denial will prevent you from treasuring those precious moments together, but acceptance will allow you to cherish those times together. 
The journey of dementia is filled with lots of twists and turns, but but it can also be filled with joy because you learn to appreciate the littlest things in life. Acceptance will make it possible for you to realize that you can still make those new memories. You will accept that it's okay if the person with dementia doesn't remember because you will always have those memories for them. The path of denial is lonely and sad. The path of acceptance is filled with new adventures, bumpy roads, and even some joy. Staying on a path of denial can be a waste of time because you really aren't enjoying life. Instead, you are exiting it. Living in denial is pretending that your life hasn't changed, even though it has, and it will continue to do so in the future. Denial means you're not using this time to educate yourself and others, and you're probably not surrounding yourself with a good support system for now and in the future. Acceptance doesn't mean giving up, but rather learning how to live in the moment, enjoying all the good times that still can be lived. Denial can be a very dark place to be. Acceptance can help give a patient a sense of peace. Acceptance makes it possible for me to learn how to live my new life. Denial forces me to not move on, but rather stay stuck. I choose acceptance. Which path will you choose? And, you know, I think that those are some really brilliant um, statements there about life in general, um, dementia or not. Um, How do you want to live your life? Um, because it's constantly moving and changing. And so I, you know, I would encourage people to go to your website, um, which we have on the, the radio page, or, or if you're listening from the blog, it's listed there. Um, but the website is bowl-coach, and then com forward slash my site. But it'll just say website on the on the radio show or on the blog, and it'll connect you right there to uh, Cheryl's writings. So again, she's got some wonderful poems and some wonderful blog posts, and she's been writing since um, 2005. Um, Cheryl, do you find that the writing for you is healing? Yes, yes, I have, I have. I have found it to be very healing, and um, I'd say the majority of my poems are about living with a memory impairment. But when I was um, when I was married, I was in a verbally abusive marriage, and I didn't leave until 27 years. So I think my writing started from that abuse because I couldn't fight back. Um, mm-hmm. I journaled, and I hid it in my underwear drawer. And I prayed that he wouldn't find it because it would cause more conflicts and more anger that I didn't Mm -hmm. want to deal with. So um, I have since written a poem about the verbal abuse. And when I first wrote that, I couldn't read it without crying. And then Mm -hmm. the more I read it, the more I, I kept digesting it. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm beyond that. I've moved forward, and that's the path. But especially that poem has been very healing for me to get all that out. And actually, I titled that one, It Was Not My Fault, because when you're in an abusive relationship, you do blame yourself. Yeah. Well, and I, I think writing is healing to those who write, but it's also really healing to others who read it as well. I mean, it's just kind of a win-win situation. I know when I started writing, um, you know, when I first kind of stepped into this space, I was encouraged to write. And I was shocked at how many people resonated with what I wrote, you know, Mm because our stories really aren't all that different from one another. But again, it's, it's getting that conversation going, that thought process and and knowing that you're you're not alone. You're also, you've done some videos too, if you want to talk about those really quick. Yeah, I've done a few. Um, I think the first first um, video I did that I uploaded on YouTube. Trying to, are you on it? I don't know if. 
No, I think if that was on. I think that was on. I moved. I moved into my apartment, and I had journaled about July of twenty fifth, two thousand five, the day that I got the diagnosis, and Mm -hmm. I had forgotten about. I had forgotten about the journal, and I found it while going through some things when I moved into my apartment. Mm-hmm. And I moved into my apartment in 2008, 2008, 2009. And I made the video in May, May 18th of 2011. Right mm-hmm. away when I found the journal, I'm like, I need to make a video about it. And it wasn't about making the video for me. I wanted to make the video to help other people. So if they recognized any symptoms I had, that they wouldn't just brush them off, that they would say, oh, I really need to have that checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made another one recently about, I don't know what it is about chapstick, but there are days that I can take this tube of chapstick, which is usually on my snack tray, and um, I can take the cover off, I can look at it, and I have no clue how to get it to the top. I don't know mm-hmm. if there's something on the bottom to turn it. I don't even know what it's called, even though the name is on the side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll write it on a shopping list, and I'll write lip stuff, and a day or two later I'll go shopping at Walmart or something, and I'll look at it, and I'll, like, giggle to myself. I'm like, oh, that was the day that the fog rolled in, and I didn't know it was chapstick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you just have to laugh at those moments. Otherwise, you yep. can't, can't stress out about all of it. Yep. I'd well, be, and what the best case. What I like about that video when you're doing it, it just shows, uh, it, it just shows us how much we take stuff for granted, you know. And and I mean, I, I remember watching it and putting myself in your shoes of not knowing how to do a chapstick or a lipstick and how frustrating, you know, that that must be. And yet, it's something that we think, you know, is just a given. And, um, you know, we can't take things for granted in life. We really have to appreciate you know, our ability to do certain things. And, and, um, and I think it was just a nice way f- to connect people with how even little things can be, you know, overwhelming um, to achieve when kind of that fog rolls in. With that, mm-hmm. well, Cheryl, I I so appreciate the time that you've taken with us today. Um, again, you can get a hold of Cheryl. You can go to her website, her YouTube channel, or her Facebook page. We have those links there available um, for you. And um, again, I I just uh, I think this was a really really interesting conversation. So I appreciate your time, Cheryl. Well, I I I want to thank you again for having me, Lori. Well, good. Good. Um, Thank you. Just part of my, just part of my advocacy work that I need to do to try to help people understand what it's like to live with a memory impairment. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to wrap up here um, just with a few comments. Um, All of our shows here on Alzheimer Speaks Radio are archived, so please feel free to check any of those out and pass those along. I also want to mention that I'm going to be doing some screenings of his neighbor, Phil. I am going to be out with um, Atria in Massachusetts and Connecticut um, coming the end end of um, October and uh, again just reach out to me if you're in that area we're also going to be doing some training on uh, driving change in dementia care uh, with the TRIA as well last I'll just mention our cruise one more time we would love for you to join us Um, and again you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you'll see information right on our homepage, or you can go to our initiatives and projects page. And I'm going to just give a shout out to a couple other sponsors of that cruise. The the art kit, which is absolutely fantastic with Lola, Footprint ID, um, the Call Alert Center, Calendar Cards, um, Trin Rose Seeley with her book, 15 Minutes of Fame, 
or Nancy Kreisman, uh, her book, The Meaningful Connections, um, Memory Joggers, and again, The 36-Hour Day and a Loving Approach to Dementia Care are all wonderful books that you might be interested in. You can also download um, helpful tips when dealing with dementia from our website as well. Until next time, have a blessed week. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.